So Lord, we pray that as we even now transition into considering your word, I pray you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Because God, we are reminded that what we need more than anything is to hear from you. Give me physical and spiritual strength to preach your word to your people. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Judges chapter 1. We're going to take a look this morning at the entire first chapter, but I'm not going to read it all to you right now. But I want to invite you to stand out of reverence for God's word as we read Genesis chapter 1, or I'm sorry, Judges chapter 1. Beginning in verse 1, and we're going to read through verse 7, and then we're going to jump over to the beginning of chapter 2 and read verses 1 through 5. So Judges chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, it says, After the death of Joshua, the Israelites inquired of the Lord, who will be the first to fight for us amongst the Canaanites? And the Lord answered, Judah is to go. I have handed the land over to him. Judah said to his brother, Simeon, come with me to my allotted territory and let us fight against the Canaanites. I will also go with you to your allotted territory. So Simeon went with him. And when Judah attacked, the Lord handed the Canaanites and the Perizzites over to them. They struck down 10,000 men in Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek in Bezek, fought against him and struck down the Canaanites and the Perizzites. When Adonai Bezek fled, they pursued him, caught him, and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. And God has repaid me for what I have done. They brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. Jump over to chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. It says, The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum. And said, I brought you out of Egypt and led you into the land I had promised to your fathers. I also said, I will never break my covenant with you. You are not to make a covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You are to tear down their altars. But you have not obeyed me. What is this you have done? Therefore I now say, I will not drive out these people before you. They will be thorns in your sides and their gods will be a trap for you. And when the angel of the Lord had spoken these words to all the Israelites, they cried out loudly. So they named the place Bochum. They offered sacrifices there to the Lord. This morning, we're going to begin with the introduction and consider the compromise of a nation. You may be seated. The compromise of a nation. <clears throat> In, in 1939, World War II began, and after a pact was made between Joseph Stalin of the Soviet Union and Adolf Hitler of Germany, the invasion of Poland began. And so on September 1st, 1939, Germany attacked Poland by coming from, from the east, and Russia from, nope, the other way around, sorry. Germany came from the west and Russia came from the east. Now Poland on its own didn't stand a chance, but in theory, Poland should never have been alone. 
Prior to World War II ever beginning, after World War I, Britain and France made a pact with Poland that if Germany ever invaded again, they would be right there to fight alongside of them. The problem came in that when Germany invaded Poland, though Britain and France declared war two days after the invasion, they never actually entered into the fight. And what followed is what's known in history as the phony war. And so for eight months, France and Britain, though mobilized, they never actually engaged in any real fighting. What's interesting is as historians look back on that decision by France and Britain, they're able to identify that this single decision was one that could have ended this catastrophic war before it ever really began if they would have kept their word. You see, Hitler, for as crazy and evil as that man was... He was a brilliant military strategist. And see, Hitler was banking on Britain and France not actually keeping their word. He knew, there are even recorded statements from Hitler which confirm that he understood that if France actually kept their word, if they would have invaded Germany on the eastern side while Germany was fighting Poland on the west, it would have been unlikely that Germany ever would have succeeded in invading Poland or doing the damage that they did throughout World War II. But Hitler was banking on this one fact, that he did not believe that France and Britain would keep their word. Why? Because they were tired. They did not want to fight another war like World War I. He was banking on people in those countries not wanting to see their sons go back to war. But Hitler knew that if France and Britain honored their commitment that they had made, if they kept their end of the deal, they would be victorious in their military conquest. But if they failed to honor their commitment, they would experience a heavy loss. See, the reason that's so interesting to me is because the nation of Israel finds itself in a very similar place. They have enemies in front of them and they have the opportunity for victory. Not because they've made treaties with other powerful nations, not because of their strategic planning, but the reason they have the opportunity for victory is because they do not fight alone. Their God fights with them. But what we will soon see is that they fail to obtain the victory that is in front of them. They fail to obtain the victory because they don't keep their end of the bargain. Again, this morning we're starting a series in the book of Judges, a series I've entitled Broken Leaders in God's Unbroken Promises. So I'm going to give you forewarning here, okay? These next couple weeks are going to be very introductory in nature. We've got to set the scene a little bit. We've got to go back in history, do some digging. So before we can ever actually look at the judges and who they they were and what they did, we've we've got to make sure we understand what's going on in Judges, what the book is all about. And in Judges, we encounter a book which records for us the story of Israel as they've entered the promised land. God has been faithful. He's done what he said he would do. And Judges records the time frame that, that, if you will, is sandwiched between, between Moses and Joshua as the leaders and King David on the other side. So it's the story of Israel in between Joshua and King David. And Judges as a whole is a book of painful disobedience. 
as we'll see, rather than the people growing closer and closer to God with each and every generation, they grow further and further from Him. And the cycle repeats throughout the book, a cycle that reflects the pattern that so many of us experience in the Christian life, a pattern of the people's sin. And they're overcome by a foreign ruler as a result. And in despair and desperation, they cry out to God. God, who is a promise-keeping God, hears their cries and raises up a judge to deliver them from the hand of their captor. And then as time progresses, and as a result of a failure of leadership, the people once again forget about God. And the cycle starts again. As Judges 2.19 teaches us, whenever the judge died, the Israelites would act even more corruptly than their ancestors, following other gods to serve them and bow and worship to them. And they did not turn from their evil practice or their obstinate ways. And with each cycle, with each one of those patterns, not only do we see a decline of the people, but we see an overall decline in the character of the judges themselves. That's, that's your Cliff Notes version of it. The judges at the beginning are the best of them. The judges at the end are the worst of them. Especially Samson, that dude's rough. And the book of Judges, it focuses on God's sovereignty, man's responsibility, and the need for faithful leaders. Now, I have to give you a little background as to how the nation of Israel got to this place and what leadership in the nation looks like. Again, we're not going to cover everything this morning in terms of background because we've got a few weeks to lay this foundation before we meet the judges themselves. But I want to show you how the people of God are structured because a change has taken place. A very significant change has taken place in Israel. The book of Judges begins with two different introductions. And what we'll see at the end is it actually ends with two different conclusions. So there are two introductions. And what we're looking at this morning is the first introduction from chapter 1, verse 1. And it goes all the way to chapter 2, verse 5. And both of the introductions are focused on two different areas of failure among the people. So the first introduction, what we're looking at this morning, is their civic failure. Meaning how the people of God as a whole, as a nation, failed to do what God had called them to do. As a, as a geopolitical people, how they as a nation failed to accomplish what God had told them to accomplish. And the second introduction, what we'll look at next week, focuses more on the religious and moral failures. Not necessarily of the nation as a whole, but as individual members of it. And both introductions in verse 1, 1 and in chapter 2, verse 6 begin with a reminder of the truth that Joshua has died. You see there in verse 1 that the story picks up with Joshua's death and it says, After the death of Joshua, the Israelites inquired of the Lord, Who will be the first to fight for us against the Canaanites? So let me dive a little bit into this background here. I promise I'm going to get to some application. I'm going, to, I'm going to draw it out. We have to go back a little bit to understand where the nation is and the progression that it took to get to this place. So we have to go back to when the people were in slavery in Egypt. <clears throat> if you remember in Exodus chapter 3, God appoints, appoints Moses as the leader of Israel. Remember that whole incident with the burning bush? 
And God calls to Moses and basically tells him, you're going to be the one who leads my people out of slavery in Egypt into free, to freedom in the promised land. And by and large, Moses does that. He leads the people out of Egypt. They're in the wilderness. Moses receives the law and he leads the people for some time. But then, as they're drawing nearer to the promised land, Moses sins. And as a result of this particular sin, Moses is prohibited from entering the promised land. And so God tells Moses who to appoint as the next leader of Israel, who the person will be who will actually lead them into the promised land. And in Numbers 27, God tells Moses that Joshua will be his successor. And so in Deuteronomy 31 verses 7 and 8, during Moses' final address, We read this, it says, Moses then summoned Joshua and said to him in the sight of all of Israel, be strong and courageous for you will go with this people into the land the Lord swore to give to their ancestors. You will enable them to take possession of it. The Lord is the one who will go before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or abandon you. Do not be afraid or discouraged. So Joshua takes the reins from Moses and Joshua leads the people well. They exit the wilderness. They come to Jericho. Some of you remember the story and God gives Jericho. The walls fall flat in front of them and God delivers the land to them. There are other enemies that rise up in the lifetime of Joshua. And Joshua, through his dependence on the Lord, he leads the people into more and more of the land. Through all of this, God is delivering his people. God leads his people into the promised land, and Joshua serves as a faithful leader. And as the book of Judges begins, Israel has a task in front of them. So as the book of Judges begins, the people are in the land. They have possession of a portion of it. But the task that they have before them, because God has delivered the land to them, is now they have to drive the inhabitants out of the land. It wasn't unoccupied territory. And so before Joshua passes, he reminds the people of this in Joshua 23, verses 6 through 8. And he says, be strong and continue obeying all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, so that you do not turn from it to the right or the left, and so that you do not associate with these nations remaining among you. Do not call on the names of their gods or make an oath to them. Do not serve them or bow and worship to them. Instead, be loyal to the Lord your God as you have been to this day. So in order for the people to live in the promised land as God intends for his people, they have to remove the people who remain there. And the reason for this is because God cares so much about the holiness of his people and he knows that if the inhabitants of the land remain, the people of God, let's be honest, they've already proven themselves to be a really fickle people. God knows that they'll be led astray. They'll be led into idolatry. They will, they will be led to live like the nations that are allowed to remain. But there's something very interesting that happens. As Joshua is preparing to die, he does not appoint another single leader to take his place. Now what's interesting is depending on the commentaries you read, many people look at this and say, ah, see, this is a failure in Joshua's leadership. Because Moses appointed Joshua, Joshua should have appointed someone else. But what we have to remember is that this is not a failure in Joshua's leadership because ultimately Moses didn't appoint Joshua. God did. 
God told Moses, this is the person that will lead the people next. And God did not tell Joshua who was to lead the people next. But instead, leadership is now shifting from a single individual to the tribes, to the elders, to the leaders, to the judges, to the officers, to the families. And so we read in Joshua 24, verse 1, Joshua assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem and summoned Israel's leaders, or, and so, sorry, summoned Israel's elders, leaders, judges, and officers, and they presented themselves before God. And then beginning with Abraham, Joshua reminds them of all that God has done, of the promise he made to Abraham, of how God has been faithful to deliver them out of Egypt, how God was faithful to crush the Egyptian army, how at every turn God has not failed to keep his promise. And then he makes this statement in Joshua 24 verse 15, and often we use this as a text for individual families, and it's not a bad Thing to do that, but this is actually Joshua giving the charge to the next generation of leaders. And Joshua 24, 15, he says, But if it doesn't please you to worship the Lord, choose for yourself today which you will worship, the gods your ancestors worship, but beyond the Euphrates River, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. As for me and my family, we will worship the Lord. And so what is taking place is that leadership is not placed on an individual person. It's placed on the people. It is the responsibility of the elders, of the officers, of the judges, of the families to follow God or to not follow God. So for the first time, leadership is dispersed among all the people. They are responsible to be obedient to a God who has proven his faithfulness. And what we see in the first introduction here in chapter 1 is that as a nation, they failed to be obedient to what God had called them to. This morning, there are four things I want, for you, I want you to see as we, we consider the state of Israel prior to the judges. And I hope as we work through this to draw out a little bit of application for you along the way. I'm just going to say one of the hardest things for me to teach is a lot of narrative and specifically history because it's difficult to draw out application for you. But I'm, I'm going to do my best. I think I got some things in here that you can hold on to and walk out of this place. But ultimately, we're setting the scene for the nation of Israel and the context for when the judges show up. But here's the first thing that I want you to see this morning. I want you to see God's faithfulness and the nation's compromise. God's faithfulness and the, and the nation's compromise. So leading up to Joshua's death, Israel had already experienced the faithfulness of God. So much so that Joshua is able to say before he dies in Joshua 21:45, none of the good promises the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. Everything was fulfilled. That is a bold declaration from Joshua that none of the good promises the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. Everything was fulfilled. Side note, that's good news for you and me because our God is an unchanging God. And that means that every promise he has made to you has come true because he does not fail. Everything is fulfilled. 
But so God has led them into the promised land. The people are there and God is giving more of it to them. That's what we see at the beginning of the book. And initially, they start off well. We see it in Joshua 1, verses 1 through 11. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites inquired of the Lord, who will be the first to fight for us against the Canaanites? And the Lord answered, Judah is to go. I have handed the land over to them. And so Judah grabs his brother Simeon, and Simeon and Judah go to work. And they start driving out and taking more of the land. They start conquering more of this land that God has promised to them. And so though they're in the promised land, there's more work to be done. And here's what I want you to see. Notice at the beginning of that passage there in in verses 1 and 2 where it says that they inquired of the Lord who will be the first to go fight against the Canaanites. And so initially, they're depending on the Lord. And as a result, they're experiencing victory. They're taking over the land. But remember, as God was faithful to his promise to give them the land, they had a responsibility. And their responsibility was to drive out anyone who was not the nation of Israel. So God is delivering more and more of what he's promised to them. But God is not removing the people. It's Israel's responsibility to go in after God gives them the land and remove the people who are there. But notice what we begin to see in verse 21. It starts a pattern in this first introduction. And verse 21 tells us, At the same time, the Benjamites did not drive out the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. And then jump down to verse 29. And you see this pattern develop. At that time, Ephraim failed to drive out the Canaanites who were living in Gezer. So the Canaanites who lived among them, so the Canaanites have lived among them in Gezer. Zebulun, failed to drive out the residents of Ketron or the residents of Naholo so that the Canaanites lived among them and served as forced labor. Asher failed to drive out the residents. And he goes through this list. And so what we see, continuing on, Naphtali did not drive out the residents of Beth Shemesh or the residents of Beth Anath. They, they lived among the Canaanites who were living in the land. Both the residents of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath served as forced forced labor. Then the Amorites, they forced the Danites into the hill country, but they, and they didn't allow them to go down in the valley, but they were still in the land. And what we see over and over and over is that God is faithful to do what he promised to do, but the people were not faithful to do what they were called to do. So I want you to get this, okay? Let me try to apply this to us. Their inability to drive out the nations was not because God failed them. It's because they failed God. And that reality is positioned to teach us a very significant truth. God's faithfulness in our lives does not remove our requirement to be faithful to him. Let me say it another way for you in case you didn't get it. God is not going to do everything for you. Understand that, Christian. God is not going to do everything for you. He is not our divine butler who caters to our every wish and desire, even if those wishes and desires are good things. And here's the rub. Often we want God to fight for us in areas where he has said he will fight with us. We want God to fight for us in areas where he has said he will fight with us. And the reason that we are not seeing the fulfillment of the promise of God in our life, it's not because God is not active. It's because we aren't active. 
Let me try to give you a couple of examples to, to flesh out what I'm talking about here. Maybe you can relate. I'll throw myself on the chopping block for this one. There have been times in my life where I have desperately wanted to grow in particular areas of my life. There have been times in my life where I have wanted greater discipline or or to overcome specific sins and temptations that I'm facing. And I've prayed, God, grow my discipline or God, give me grace and strength to overcome this sin. I'm tired of wrestling with it. I'm tired of fighting with it. Help me grow in my holiness. And then it doesn't happen. And in those times... I've been frustrated because I feel like it's God who's not listening to me. But in those moments, God has often been gracious through his spirit to remind me that my growth, yes, though he is sovereign over it all, requires me to be working towards my growth as well. Yes, Philippians 1.6 is true, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. But so is Philippians 2.12, where it says you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And some of us in this room right now, maybe in hard seasons, seasons where we need God to move and to move in power. And maybe the reason we are not seeing God move the way we want, it's not because God is not willing to move, but perhaps we aren't. Let me give you another example. We'll take it more in a corporate example as a church. I had someone recently come up to me a couple weeks ago here from New Breed. And don't worry, I asked them if I can share this story. For the record, I never share your stories unless I ask you for permission to share your stories. But they come up and they ask me a question. And they said, why don't you think we're seeing people come to faith at New Breed Church? That's a good question. That's an honest question. They said, why don't you think we're seeing more people come to faith in New Breed? And they said, doesn't God say... That the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Why isn't God delivering a harvest? And my response to them was, you're right. Matthew 9 is true. The harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. Jesus did say that. But he also said Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always to the ends of the earth. That is Jesus saying, I will fight with you as you go, but I won't fight for you. God's faithfulness does not remove our requirement of faithfulness. And so then going back to our text this morning, the question is, why didn't they do what God called them to do? I mean, if God has already given them the land, he has shown his faithfulness to them, why is it that they didn't do what God told them to do? Why didn't they drive out the inhabitants of the land? And the text gives us insight. See, here's the second truth I want you to notice from the text that helps us understand the state of Israel. Israel imitated the culture imitated Israel imitated the culture look back at verses five through seven this is when Judah and Simeon are are fighting the Canaanites and it we read this they found Adonai Bezek in Bezek they fought against him and they struck down the Canaanites and the Perizzites and when Adonai Bezek fled they pursued him caught him cut off his thumbs and big toes Strange detail, right? Adonijah Bezek said 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. 
And God has repaid me for what I have done. And they brought him to Jerusalem and he died there. Now there are a couple of things to note here. What they did to the king when they caught him, Adonai Bezek is a king. What they did to the king and where they took the king. So first, what they did to King Adonai Bezek, it says they pursued him, caught him, they cut off his thumbs and his big toes. Might seem like a weird punishment, but the reason that thumbs were cut off and that toes were cut off is because a king basically became unusable in war. You can't hold a sword with no thumbs. It's going to be hard to fight on a battlefield without your big toes. Those are, that's an important toe. You, you balance with it. But here's what's interesting. Nowhere else in Scripture do we see this. It was never commanded by God for Israel to do this. It was not written into their laws. I checked, and let's be honest, sometimes some of Israel's laws just seem a little bit out there. It's not in there. It was not even common practice. So where then did they get this idea to cut off his thumb and his big toes? Well, look at what the king says when they caught him. Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off used to pick up scraps from under my table. Ah, that's where they got it from. The king they did it to. They got it by imitating the culture that was around them. By doing the very thing God warned them against by adopting the practices of the nations. But then notice where they took the king. They brought him to Jerusalem and he died there. Where were they supposed to take the king? Anywhere but where they were. So they took him to the place where they dwelled. And what was God's command? Drive the people out. Don't Don't fellowship with them, don't interact with them, and they bring the king to Jerusalem. And what we see is that the people of God are already beginning to imitate the patterns and the practices of the culture. Michael Smith, as he reflects on this interaction with Adonai Bezek and Judah and Simeon, he says this, he says, no one can follow both the culture and God at the same time. Leadership involved looking past the culture we must deal with and looking instead to the character of the one we must follow. In other words, you cannot follow culture and God at the same time. Once again, you and I are called to be in this world and not of the world. And we cannot miss this. Please don't be confused about this. Our world is trying to tell us how to think and how to live. The culture has a worldview and the culture has its own belief system. And the problem is that too many Christians are letting the culture define their Christianity rather than letting their Christianity define the culture. Listen, I, I just, I'll be honest with you. I am so tired of talking to people who claim the name of Christ and Fox News or CNN informs their beliefs more than the Word of God. Some of y'all are like, well, that's not me. I don't watch TV. That's fine. I am also tired of talking to people who claim the name of God, who claim the name of Christ, and Twitter informs their faith more than the Word of God. But it runs even deeper than that. There is a quote-unquote Christian culture too. That depending on what tribe you fall into tries to tell you what you have to think and believe in order to be a part of that tribe. And the problem is we are listening more to our favorite Christian cultural representatives than we are to the very word of God. 
And it's destroying faithfulness in the church. It is destroying faithfulness in the church. There are so many people who I do not care what their take on abortion is. I do not care what their take on racism is. I do not care what their take on homosexuality is. I care what God has to say about those things. Has to say about it. And the problem is some of us care more about what those people say than what God says. I'm going to be straight with us, church. It's starting to show. And it's destroying faithfulness. And if we are ever going to be what God has called us to be, if the church is ever going to do what God has called the church to do, at some point we have to look beyond the culture that we must deal with to who our God actually is and what he actually says and then make the choice and decide, do we trust him? Because here's, here's what I want you to know. The culture will promise to save you, but it can't. The culture will promise to sanctify you, but it can't. The culture does not have within itself the power to fulfill the promises it makes, but God does. And here at the beginning of Judges, the people were swayed more by the culture than they were by their God. And so here's my question. Are you... Are there things right now that you believe that the culture agrees with, but you can't back it up with the Word of God? And maybe some of us don't even know how to answer that question because we've just assumed the culture was right and never taken it to the Word of God. And we see that even, even though God was faithful, his people were starting to imitate the culture. They were doing the thing that he warned about. But we actually see another reason why they compromised. A further explanation. Here's the third thing I want you to know. Israel feared the world. They feared the world. Not only were they imitating the world, but they also feared the world. So notice this. Judah, even after imitating the world, he did have some success. We read it in verses 1 through 11. God was still being faithful. He was still giving them more land, even though they were failing to drive out the people who were in the land. And then you come to verse 19, which is very interesting. And it says this. The Lord was with Judah and enabled them to take possession of the hill country. But they could not drive out the people who were living in the plain because those people had iron chariots. Now at first glance, it may seem like, man, this is telling us that like God delivered the land to them, but God wasn't able to complete the job. Yeah, he gave them the land, but the other people had iron chariots, and that was just too much power for our God. Now, we know that isn't the case. Remember, God promised to deliver the land, and he never fails to deliver on his promise. So then where does the fault lie? Well, it lies in the fact that God expected his people to hold up their end of the bargain and to drive out the inhabitants. He would fight with them. But it was on the people to engage in the fight. So then maybe we could assume, well, what this is telling us then is that God, God is strong enough to do what he said that he would do. But the people weren't strong enough to do what they were supposed to do. 
And in some sense, that would be an accurate reading because they had iron chariots, right? Israel wasn't prepared to fight that. But what's interesting is God had actually already promised them this specific victory. Back in Joshua 17 verse 18, they're instructed about this very moment. And it says, because the hill country will be yours also. It is a forest, clear it. And, it, and its outlying areas will be yours. You can also drive out the Canaanites even though they have iron chariots and are strong. Because yes, the people of God were not strong enough to defeat them on their own, but they weren't fighting by themselves. God wasn't going to fight for them, but he would fight with them if they would just trust him. God's already told them that the victory is theirs. They simply don't believe it. They are too afraid of what they see in front of them. They're too afraid of the world around them and what the world could do to them. And so they're viewing the conflict through only an earthly perspective. It reminds me of what David says in Psalm 20 verse 7. Some take pride in chariots and others in horses, but we take pride in the name of the Lord our God. And see, the problem for Israel was that they understood what God said he would do, but they also understood what was in front of them. And in that moment, they believed that God was not faithful enough to overcome what looked like insurmountable odds. Hear me, church. It's one thing to trust God when you can rationalize that if God lets you down, you have enough strength on your, own, on your own to overcome. It's another thing to trust God when he is your only option. Yeah, yeah, you, that was like the amen right there. That was it. But do we not so often function like that? Like I'm going to trust God. But I've got my backup plan. Like, I'll trust him in this, but I know that, like, if he doesn't come through, this is a situation that I got enough, I got enough financial backing, I got enough family support, I've got enough fill in the blank that if God doesn't come through, I'll still be okay. And that's what we assume faith is. But it's a whole different, different thing to trust God. We say, God, if you don't come through, I got nothing. I got nothing. And so what we see is that Israel appeared to be a nation that they trusted God when they had enough strength in themselves to cover if God didn't come through the way they wanted to. But here's a moment where they don't have that. If God doesn't show up, yo, the, air, the iron chariots win. And so rather than trust God when he's the only option, they just pull out of the fight. Here's the thing. The world can do a lot of damage to us. If we do not bend to its ways, it's true. But God can do even more damage if we refuse to submit to him. Jesus teaches in Matthew 10, 28, don't fear those who kill the body but are not able to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. I understand that the world can take our reputation. The world can take our goods. The world can take our earthly freedom if we do not bend the knee to the cultural pressure. But what, what the world cannot take is our hope in the life to come. And the question that we have to answer is who do we fear more? The world or our Lord? Hebrews 10, 31 reminds us it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And the people trusted God, 
but only when it made earthly sense to them. And so they compromised. They compromised. And here's the final truth I want you to see this morning. Compromise leads to consequences. Every time, compromise leads to consequences. At the end of the first introduction, we read chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum and said, I brought you out of Egypt and led you into the land I had promised to your ancestors. I also said, I will never break my covenant with you. You are not to make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. You are to tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed me. What have you done? Therefore, I now say I will not drive out these people before you. They will be thorns in your sides and their gods will be a trap for you. And when the angel of the Lord had spoken these words to all the Israelites, the people wept loudly. So they named that place Bochum. That means weeping. And they offered sacrifices there to the Lord. Compromise. It it always leads to consequences. And we cannot miss the weight of this. The thing that was to be their reward, the land that had been promised to them for a time would now be their struggle. Their compromise did not bring about the ease they longed for. It did not bring about the blessing of God. It brought hardship. What I want to tell you this morning is that compromise might provide temporarily, temporary relief. We've talked about this before, family. It would be easier to bend to the cultural norms of the day. It would be easier to fold when it comes to biblical sexuality. It would. It'd be easier for me. It'd be easier for you. It would be easy to agree and adopt the worldview of this world. And it would bring temporary, temporary relief. But what this text is positioned to teach us is that it will also bring long-term harm. It's almost as if God really does know what is best for us. It's almost as if he does. That God tells his people, drive out the inhabitants of the land. It's for your good. And they say, it's too hard. And they get temporary relief. But now what was to be their blessing will be their hardship and thorn. And what we will see in the book of Judges, time and time and time again is this failure it's this failure but what we will also see time and time and time again is that even though the Lord does not drive out their enemies even though he allows them to struggle and to suffer and to be held captive he never leaves them in the midst of their failure God does not abandon them. And we will see throughout this book that when the people of God abandon God, He refuses to turn His back on them because He is faithful. 
And the encouraging thing for us as we embark on this journey through the book of Judges is that our God never changes. And the patience and the long-suffering and the endurance that he has with Israel, he has with you and me. He is still patient and he is still kind. And the book of Judges presents a beautiful but painful precursor to, to the gospel that we believe. Israel's story is our story. Just like Israel, every one of us rebel against God. Every one of us have turned away. We've chosen the world. We've chosen its ways. We've wanted to be God all by ourselves on our own. And yet God, as Romans 2, 4 tells us, is patient and kind. And that patience is meant to lead us to repentance. And we know the kindness and the patience and the love of God because we know what it took to redeem us. We know that though we are like Israel, Israel and we had all gone our own way, God loved us so much that he sent Jesus to come and live this life that we should have lived. He's the faithful Israel. He's the faithful judge. He's the faithful king. He is the faithful father. He's the faithful mother. He's the faithful son. He is what we can't be. He lived the perfect life and, and then he died the death that you and I deserve to die crucified and buried and raised from the dead so that we could have access to God for all of eternity because God is patient and he is kind. But that's not just our hope for coming to Christ. That's our hope as we walk with Christ because those of you who are my brothers and sisters in Christ, let's call it what it is. We still struggle with that same cycle of sin. We screw it up. And we feel the weight of it and we cry out for God for deliverance and he delivers and we rejoice and we follow him and then we forget. And we do the same thing again and time and time again our faithful father never turns his back on us because if we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us our trespasses and cleanse us from all unrighteousness and the beauty of that text is not the amount of our, for, of our seeking his forgiveness. The beauty of that text is that he's always there to forgive. He is a faithful God. So as we conclude this sermon, let me just say this. I am excited to explore Judges with you. I'm excited to see these incredible pictures of broken leaders, but God's unbroken promises. And I hope that at the end of this series, that we walk away with two things. A better understanding of what it looks like to faithfully follow Jesus and a greater awe for the fact that our God is so faithful. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that when we are faithless, you are faithful because you cannot deny yourself. God, I pray, even now as we prepare to for the next few months, explore this book of Judges, that you would, you would reveal to us the majesty of who you are more and more. Pray that we will savor your patience and your grace and your mercy more and more because we know and we believe, God, that all that we have and all that we are is because you are a faithful God. 
because every one of your promises you have delivered on and you have never failed. Because your grace is still strong to save. And we give you all the praise and all the glory. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.